Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. It's not a poor source of arousal for me, Vern's pain. If I didn't periodically leave him, we'd never stay together. How he gets left is what's interesting about him. This program features the work of 2016 writer Ramon Isao. He discussed his work with curator Karen Finneyfrock. So your project for Jackstraw is a collection of what you call genre-bending stories. Sure. Tell me about it. I wouldn't really say that um, there's something specific about this project that ties the stories together except for my own preoccupations. I mean, I love obsession. I love disaster, especially disaster of a particularly like supernatural nature. Like I really love that. And I love humor and how um, I really love humor as a means of really trying to access pain and processing disaster. For some reason, humor's always been kind of my defense mechanism, so I'd say that that kind of binds the stories together to some extent. So some of the disasters that show up in your stories, mm -hmm. things like earthquake, car mm -hmm. crashes, um, do you research disasters, or how do you come to know more about these disasters before they play into the stories? I think I'm just fearful, you know? I mean, I think I just write things that really terrify me, that really scare me, you know? So, like, a lot of that stuff is just thinking of what the worst-case scenario in my life is right now and then kind of pushing that. I think that's basically where it comes from. When I was a kid, um, I'm half Salvadorian and I'm half Japanese. It's a strange mix, which is why I'm a strange person. And when I was growing up, there was a really horrible civil war in El Salvador and lost a lot of family members. And it was kind of weird to grow up in suburban Seattle in this kind of idyllic place where occasionally something really horrible would happen. I mean, horrible, you know, murder, torture, those kinds of things. And as a kid, it was so difficult to process those things. And I think the idea that you could be in this idyllic setting and all of a sudden your dad's kind of weeping in a corner and you're trying to kind of, you know, they can't tell you everything, but you get little details here and there. And a cousin of mine was not shy about sharing some of the grislier details. So there was always this idea that you could be in this idyllic place and something would just go horribly wrong and everything would change. And so I think that fear kind of drives some of that, you know. Um, and of course I have to laugh at it to a certain extent, so I tend to employ humor because it's just easier for me to process that way. Well, that leads me to another one of my questions, mm -hmm. which is, is there a time, you know, maybe when you were younger when you imagine or you remember first wanting to be a writer or first kind of realizing that you were a writer? I do remember, that's funny you ask, when I was eight years old, I figured out, I, I don't know, I think I might have been considerably younger, but for some reason I figured out that people wrote the books that I read. And when I figured that out, I was like, people write these. I mean, I, I, I kind of knew in some abstract sense, but it, when it occurred to me that I could write one, um, I got very, very happy and started jumping up and down on the couches. And I told my dad, oh, my God, Dad, I know what I want to do with my life. And he was like, yeah, it's adorable, but whatever. It's probably – life's going to crush you. So uh, don't get used to that idea. <laughs> How do you know when a story's finished? 
I'm horrible at that. They live on my hard drive for years and years and years. I'm very, obviously she's way, obviously she's a legend and rightly so, but um, the writer Grace Paley, I'd heard um, this really great story that she lived across the street from Donald Bartleme, another one of my heroes, and that she took so long, you know, she only released, I think, two short story collections in her entire lifetime. But um, anyway, uh, my understanding is that she would sit on her work for a really long time to the extent that Bartleme, he one day crossed the street, knocked on her door and was like, Grace, let's go. Let's get, where is, let's, let's do this. Show me what you got. And she started showing him stories and he would read them and go, that's great. That's, let's, okay, send that to the guy. Let's get this published and that. So I think it was her second short story collection uh, he was one of the things that got her to like, come on, let's, they're, they're good. They're ready. Let's go. They're great. Let's, let's do this. Um, and that's the thing that I'm very bad at too. I tend to sit on them for years and years. They tend to be pretty old by the time I send them out because I've just finally decided like, okay, I don't think it's going to blow up anytime soon. So let's, let's, let's get it out of my life. Um, but I guess the short answer is I know that I'm done with them when I want them out of my life. Like they've got to go. They've got to go. I'm sick of thinking about it. They just have to go. I did all I could and now they have to go to college and learn how to drink and, and talk to people and they have to go and have a life and other people are going to judge them horribly and that's fine. They just have to go and do that. I think that's when I'm like, okay, it's ready because I'm sick of this thing. <laughs> Now we'll hear a selection from Ramon's live reading. I'm going to read a short story about a kind of a dissolving friendship between two women. It's called uh, This Ice, That Water. I'm breaking up with Vern again when Kitty calls. I chose the alibi room for its light dinners and near silence, but Kitty's voice is all nose. Patrons glance over, it's nearly a scene. Luce, there's someone in my apartment. Not now, I'm letting Vern down easy. Maybe come over, she says, through gasps. Maybe soothe me some. Kitty, you can't keep doing this. You're the one who found me this apartment. Yeah, you're welcome. Her voice gets thin. What I'm saying is, whoever's in this apartment is your fault. Even Vern hears it in her voice, stops crying for long enough to look concerned. I can drive us, he says, and sobs again. God covered Kitty in bullseyes. Kitty once went to jail for not paying a parking ticket that had likely blown off in Hurricane Pearl. Kitty never had sex in her 20s. Kitty watches people hold hands in malls. Kitty's had a cockroach in her mouth. Kitty finally got some guy drunk enough to cross parts with, but he made excuses when she took off her bra, wouldn't even look her in the eyes. No use mentioning what her father and brother took turns doing to her when she was so young, it scares me to say her exact age out loud. But I was born to save her. Listen to me, nothing but nothing will touch my kitty. I demand of the universe to leave her be. I'm the one who pays the parking tickets. I'm the one who saved top dollar to hire a hard, wet-eyed Latino to pick her up in a bar. I was the one who found the bag of shit who bolted upon seeing Kitty's admittedly unorthodox breasts and lit the inside of his car on fire. Kitty wasn't even convinced he deserved it. I'm the one who finally called the cops on her dad and her brother, and once they were cuffed and led away, I was the one who Kitty cursed and struck. 
And after Kitty chugged a strawberry limeade hole at the Cheesecake Factory, pulled a face, reached into her mouth, and plucked out a huge cockroach, and after that cockroach flipped over and braced up her arm, I'm the one who grabbed it with my bare hand, squeezed, and made pieces of it rain down onto the table, demanding of anyone who'd listen for a free meal, and I'm the one who got that free meal, along with pie and a candle for Kitty's birthday. <laughs> I whistle up at her window from the street. She opens up and throws the front door keys at me. They hurt to catch. Super jiggle it, okay? She yells from on high, like super jiggle it. We get up there and she hugs me for too long and says aw to Vern, who looks humiliated to the point he's almost dazed. It's not a poor source of arousal for me, Vern's pain. If I didn't periodically leave him, we'd never stay together. How he gets left is what's interesting about him. Kitty goes, so it's like I said, there's someone here. Oh, there actually is? See for yourself on the counter. I help Vern get seated on a box Kitty never unpacks and go over for a look at what couldn't possibly be a human femur. No, I say. It is. I found it in that real high cabinet over the stove, says Kitty. Not a femur, Kitty Cat. Never a femur. Come on. Femur? Jeez, I'm impressed. I had to look it up. And now Vern shuffles groggily over, blessed by the lucidity that comes only with hours of weeping. Hmm, he says. And I admit to some disappointment that he can shift so quickly from teary-eyed to quizzical. It didn't even take a real bone. <laughs> that ain't never been no bone, though, decides Vern. Kitty smiles to seem less infuriated. It's a femur, she says. Vern puts his arm up against it. Ain't an arm in the world's like that. Femur's in your leg, I say, idiot. But I thought the same, Kitty tells him, likely as a gesture of empathy he'd never notice. The only bones in this room are inside, somebody, Vern says. That's wood, or what do you call it? Kitty's smile recedes, but the fury remains. I brace for a squall. Instead, to Kitty's credit, she puts on this exquisite show of self-control. She catches her breath, punches her hammies, wrings a smile out of those earthworm lips, and I hate her. I hate her whole life, and I hate that it's up to me to tell her that this thing's a bone. To bed down some anger, I pocket my fists and clench everything. Kitty sees it, opens up a drawer, rifles through expired coupons and rubber bands. If it's wood, it'll burn. She holds up a clear purple lighter, so burn it. <laughs> we do it in the bathroom. Kitty picks out a spot where it's already splintered a bit from Vern trying to bash it against the countertop. He flicks the lighter to life and brings it under that knob that would normally plug right under the hip. The flame laps at it and there's this moment where we're three people waiting on a bone to burn and then the air is filled with the electric scent of a thousand burning hairs. Vern says, now, damn it, for some reason and drops it in the bathtub. It's possible he misunderstood the entire experiment. <laughs> and, says Kitty through a mouthful of triumph, you'd never know she'd found a body part in her house. Vern and I share a sink to wash our hands. He keeps trying to make eye contact with me. Ain't no and, says Vern. You call 911. Loosen me. We go. Vern, you don't tell me where the fuck I go. Besides, says Kitty, is this really an emergency? It's an emergency for whoever's leg that is, says Vern. <laughs> God damn, it smells like a tiny little man on fire in here. Say it's a bone, Loose. Just say it's a bone. But I can't give her that. I guess I like the way her need feels. 
She lets out something between a groan and a scream and storms of the kitchen. Vern stops me from following. Luce, last month when we helped her move in here, she got us a pizza, you remember? And you got those red paper plates with the flowers? Okay. Well, you told me to put the extra plates away, right up in that cabinet. And there wasn't no bone then, Luce. That bone is new. They send us a cop called Vasquez, and he asks to see our IDs. When he gets to mine, he sees my name and switches to Spanish. I have to tell him I can't speak, which is always awful. That look they give you. I'm a tia Tomasita. I'm a gringa. Better sometimes to fake it. What's this black spot, he says, pointing at the round black burn. I went ahead and set her on fire, sniffs Vern. Smelled like a power plant. So, Catherine, you found it in that cabinet. You called your friends, and you all set the bone on fire? <laughs> sure did, says Kitty, still all smiles. It's creeping the cop out. He can't possibly think much of us. Which has something to do with us not telling him the femur wasn't there when we moved her in. It seemed like the kind of thing you sit on. <laughs> I'm not so sure it's real, Vasquez finally says. He hasn't written down a single word. Pretty sure that's fiberglass. I don't think much will come of it. But an hour later, the building is taped off and surrounded by cop cars. Lights twirl, sullen officers poke around. Kitty and I watch from the curb once they've asked us the same questions Vasquez did in far more alarmed terms. Mm-hmm. Vern's gone to get us coffee. It's cold enough out to see the breath keeping Kitty alive. Kitty, I say through my own teeth, it's a bone, okay? It is, it's a bone. Here's where it happens. This is the part I never understand. After I say this, she's supposed to smile, embrace me, and we'll be closer than we were moments before. That's what's supposed to go here. It's what we do. Instead, where once there was Kitty and me, now it's just people sitting too close together in front of a building with a bone inside. Kitty, I say quietly, as if testing to see if she's awake. I needed you, she says, to see it. I know, I'm sorry. No, it's okay, that's too much need. My therapist told me I let you stand between me and reality. I told her to kill herself. I'm ready to regret that now. Where'd the bone come from, I ask her, probably to see if the subject can be changed. Turns out it can't. She stands up and tilts her head into shadow. I tell her not to leave me. I say, don't go. You don't want me to? Of course not. You won't survive this. Well, she says, we'll both have to work on that. A month later, investigators find a woman's body buried at the site of a shuttered bowling alley down the street. She's missing her left leg. Within days, they find dozens more, most of them young girls. I wish I'd protected every one of them. I wish I could have stood between them and reality. I'm desperate to process it all with someone, but Vern's new girlfriend has sworn him off me and Kitty never calls back. The killer isn't found. Decades pass. Details of the case flake away. I can let the occasional day go by without thinking of Kitty, and I've long forgotten Vern's face. I forget what color the paper plates were and the name of the cop who first responded or the number of girls they found buried in the end. At some point in my old age, I can't even remember what it was that Kitty found. And when I call the memory to mind, it's been distilled into questions I can't answer. Who invented friendship? Who first made the distinctions between threats and loved ones? 
It was likely the same cave dwellers who first weaved sounds together to make words of things. And wasn't I one of them? And wasn't Kitty? Yes, we were. And here, in the moments before I slip out of life, the memory comes back to me. And there at last is Kitty again, a furry toddler, plagued by flies, strapped to my back by the poorly cured skin of some animal. And as we forage and slaver across these lands, she asks me to show her the distinctions, and I do, because I know that one day they'll keep her alive. This, ice. That, water. This, breath. That, sky. This, rock. That, mountain. This, woman. That, bone. Thank you guys so much. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2016 curator of this program is Karen Finneyfrock. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Mo Preventure, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Seattle Jazz Composers Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>